Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. We rely on the generosity of our listeners to sustain this ministry and the message of the coming kingdom of heaven. Please consider making a donation to Beth Emanuel by clicking on the Donate tab at BethEmmanuel.org. We are now well into the season of Teshuva repentance, and coming up on the high holidays. During these 40 days before Yom Kippur, we are taking account, creating a cheshbon hanefesh, an accounting of our own souls, searching out our hearts like King David says, search me and try me and see if there be any offensive way in me. And we are making what rectifications and repairs we can, offering restitution when necessary, working toward reconciliation wherever possible. That's repentance. Ordinarily, for most people, most of the work needs to be done in our closest relationships. Those we love the most tend to be the ones we hurt the most. That's why living at peace with one another in community is so difficult. Not because we hate each other, but because we love one another, because we are a family. And that's why living at peace within your family is so difficult. Not because you hate one another, but because you love one another and are therefore so invested in one another. So I thought this might be a good time to turn back to the book of Ephesians and press on a little further because we are coming up on a section where Paul speaks about these types of relationships, particularly the marriage relationship in the passage that comes at the end of Ephesians 5. He refers to marriage as a profound mystery. By that remark, he does not mean that men are from Mars and women are from Venus or that you can't live with them and you can't live without them. By referring to marriage as a profound mystery, he invokes the language of Jewish mysticism. A mystery is an esoteric secret on the level of sod. Let's take a look at the profound mystery. Paul did not write the epistle to the Ephesians to offer marital counsel. The principal concern behind Paul's epistle to the Ephesians pertains to the symbiotic relationship between Israel and the nations. It's a relationship which finds expression in the seemingly dichotomous poles of unity and distinction within the school of Yeshua's disciples. It describes the body of Messiah as a spiritual entity composed of many differing parts. The various parts come together to comprise one metaphysical entity, but the parts are not identical. The various parts of the body have their own unique roles and functions but they share in the common unity of the collective entity to serve as the physical presence of Messiah on earth until his return. This is to teach us the principle of unity and differentiation. Oneness does not entail a loss of individual identity. Oneness is not sameness. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. 1 Corinthians 12.20 Paul describes the body as one new man, likening us to a single human being. It's not just a convenient metaphor. It has theological significance, which pertains to the resurrection of the dead. The spiritual essence, which is our sense of self, our neshama, lacks distinction and definition until it becomes associated with a human body. Through our association with our human body, we derive individuality, distinction, identity, and personality. 
These are gifts that the limitations of the human body bestow upon the otherwise limitless and unbounded spirit. Compressed into a limited awareness and forced into identification with a finite human body, our spirits take on shape and definition, so to speak. They become differentiated. This is the reason for the future resurrection of the dead. The physicality of the human body anchors the otherwise undefined spiritual aspect of man, lest we are reabsorbed into the light from which we were birthed and in which there is neither shadow nor variation. We do not seek a state of nirvana where our ego ceases to be. Instead, we are to retain distinction differentiated even in unity with the source, even in the world to come. Therefore, resurrection is the central idea of the salvation of the soul, not an add-on at the end. Without resurrection, the individuality of the soul is lost, reabsorbed into the light. These are the higher mystical ideas knocking around in Paul's head as he works out the shape of the assembly of Messiah on paper in the book of Ephesians. Paul believes that these esoteric ideas, which are hallmarks of Pharisaic cosmology, find expression in this world through the resurrection of the physical body of Yeshua of Nazareth and his ascension to the Father, a precursor of the future resurrection of the righteous. Meanwhile, and until then, his school of disciples remain here as his representatives on earth to stand in for him. No single disciple can take his place or claim to be the Son of God, but we are all elevated to the level of sons and daughters by kinship with him as members of the same spiritual family with the same Father, and together we become the Messiah on earth. That's what it means to be members of the body of Messiah. And in the physical body of Messiah on earth, there remains physical distinction. Paul expresses the same concept in Galatians in these words, For as many of you as were baptized into Messiah have put on Messiah. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in the Messiah, Yeshua. Galatians 3, 27-28 In this saying, Paul does not discount the distinctions between the Jews and Gentiles, between slave and free, between male and female. He does not blur the boundaries between nations or between genders, nor does he attempt to diminish the sober social reality of slavery in the Roman world. Instead, he appeals to a higher sense of unity which ought to transcend distinctions of nation, gender, and class. That higher sense of unity is derived from our common and shared identity in Yeshua. On this basis, Paul argues through all of his epistles that Jews and Gentile disciples should offer one another mutual respect, dignity, and honor, affirming each other's unique callings, submitting to one another in love. Likewise, husbands should love their wives and treat them with honor and dignity, befitting a co-heir of salvation, and wives should submit to their husbands and grant them honor and respect. Children should honor and obey their parents 
and parents should not disregard the dignity of their children. Slaves should serve their human masters honestly and diligently, as if they labored for Yeshua, their true master. Slave owners should not mistreat their slaves or deal with them harshly, remembering that they are brothers in Messiah. All of this is the outworking and natural application of distinction theology. These are the types of distinctions Paul has in mind when he offers us this idyllic snapshot of the community of Messiah. Address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Master Yeshua the Messiah, submitting to one another out of reverence for Messiah. Ephesians 5, 19-21. When he says that we should submit to one another out of reverence for Messiah, it should be understood to mean submit to one another as if you were submitting to the Messiah. Paul wants Jewish disciples and Gentile disciples to submit to one another, outdoing one another in according honor to each other, each one looking to the other as if this person was the Messiah himself. The principle applies not just to relationships between Jews and Gentiles within the body of Messiah, but to all of us with one another. The rule of thumb is that we should offer deference to our brother or our sister in Messiah, as we would for the Messiah himself. And this calls for a high level of humility. If you ever feel like your ego is bruised, if you feel insulted, if you feel that you have not received the respect that you deserve, if your feathers get ruffled, this is the work of the Spirit, indicating areas in your life where you have yet to apply this principle of submitting to one another out of reverence for the Messiah. It calls not for a total abnegation of the ego, which is the same as the disappearance of the individual, but rather for a conquest of the ego. God does not seek the dissolution of the self or the dissolution of the individual, as some Eastern religions do. Instead, as the Baal Shem Tov says, our job is subduing the evil inclination and bringing it to the service of Hashem and the love of Hashem, along with our good inclination. Imagine a community governed by such a principle, where no one is on the warpath to defend the self or prop up the ego, where no one feels the need to assert power over another, and no one has an ego to bruise or feelings to hurt. That's a picture of the kingdom. This is what Yeshua envisioned when he spoke of taking the lower seat, of the least being greatest, of the last being first, the first being last, and whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 20, 25-28 This concept of submitting to one another as if submitting to the Messiah is utterly disruptive to an honor-based society. It's disruptive to us. It's completely contrary to the normal human tendency. We go just the opposite direction, wanting others to submit to us to serve our needs, to acknowledge our rank, and to bestow flatteries to prop up our egos. Facebook created a platform which allowed people to find affirmation for their egos in the form of likes and thumbs up and other social media accolades 
launching a whole new universe of self-absorption. Such a combination is utterly addictive to the ego, more addictive than heroin, the need to find approval and validation. The self is insatiable. The more you feed the self, the hungrier it becomes. People try to quench their own inner pain and self of inadequacy by slathering the wounded ego with self-aggrandizement, power, position, prestige, possessions. Others continuously apply and reapply the bomb of self-pity, blame, and resentment, bathing their wounded egos in bitterness and victimization. But neither remedy works. And you can see how this toxic stew of self-absorption has the potential to sour every human relationship, especially relationships with those closest to us. That's human dysfunction. What's the solution? The solution is to find our identity in the new man, which is Messiah, where we all have a role to play and function in the body. We need not concern ourselves with our own sense of self, because each of us belongs to the greater self. Within this greater self, we defer to one another, submitting one to another as if to the master. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need for you. Paul extends the principle to address family relationships, and he offers a few words to address the marital relationship between a husband and a wife. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as the Messiah is the head of the assembly, his body, and is himself its Savior. Ephesians 5, 22 and 23. With my apologies to half the human species, this is exactly what it sounds like. Patriarchal and a little chauvinistic by today's standards. But it's not intended that way. Instead, Paul seeks to elevate the relationship between a man and his wife up out of dysfunction to a spiritual plane of mutual submission modeled on the relationship between Yeshua and his disciples. In the Roman world, Women were not treated well, and wives had few rights. Judaism looked positively progressive and nearly egalitarian by comparison with the rest of the world. Judaism introduced the Bible's view of women to the pagan world, a view in which husbands and wives were deemed as equal and opposite partners, like two halves of a single being. In fact, That's the traditional Jewish interpretation of the creation of human beings, that male and female are severed halves of the same being, the same creature. From the Bible's perspective, women are not property. They have rights and dignity and protections under the Torah. They cannot be used and discarded. In Paul's view, every home reflects the union of Messiah and his disciples, which is in itself a microcosm of the union of God and Israel, and ultimately of God and all of humanity. Accordingly, every home is a spiritual unit in the greater spiritual unity, and part of a spiritual hierarchy which starts with God, who is the head of the Messiah, who is the head of the disciple, who is the head of his wife, who is the head of the household, the children, and the servants. 
This material is well covered in the FFOZ book, Adam Loves Eve, and I'm not at this time going to go into those long discussions about how to negotiate a marriage. I don't want to get distracted here by the controversy around the passage or by pastoral concerns for fixing marriages, but a few words are necessary. First, notice that Paul addresses this directive to women and not to men when he says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the master. He is not speaking to husbands, but to wives. Men have wrongly felt like this directive and many similar directives in the New Testament grant them permission to spiritually bully their wives and force them to submit to their will and whim. That's not the case at all. It's her mitzvah and her prerogative, not his prerogative, not his job or his responsibility to make her submit, not really even his business. He remains bound by the previous principle, submitting to one another out of reverence for the Messiah. When Paul turns to the husbands to address them and their role in the relationship, he does not say, force your wives to submit to you. Instead, he tells them to love their wives as Messiah loves his disciples. Likewise, in the sister epistle of Colossians, Paul enjoins married men, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Colossians 3.19. Paul says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as the Messiah is the head of the assembly, his body, and is himself its savior. The Torah explains that when a man clings to his wife, the two will become one flesh, that is, a new single creature. This is why the New Testament can, on the one hand, refer to the disciples of Yeshua as the bride of Messiah, and on the other hand, describe the disciples of Yeshua as the body of Messiah. A man's bride becomes his own self when he leaves his family and cleaves to her to create a new family. That's the biblical model. Husband and wife join to create a new identity which is compared to a new physical creature, one flesh. The man is to be the head of this one flesh new creature. The woman is the body of the creature. In a similar passage, he says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is the Messiah. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of the Messiah is God. 1 Corinthians 11.3 This means that when a man is properly attached to his wife, he functions as her spiritual head, just as the Messiah is his spiritual head, and God is the spiritual head of Messiah. Headship, like this, implies leadership and authority. But in this equation, it also implies completing a spiritual circuit between heaven and earth, where the human family reflects the divine family. The Bible models a husband who loves his wife. Paul tells us that men are to emulate the Messiah in their love for their wives. He says, Husbands, love your wives as the Messiah loved the assembly and gave himself up for her. A sentiment which evokes the image of a man crucified to the self on behalf of the marriage. This is a sacrificial love. It allows no bullying. It does not force anything. Instead, 
The biblical husband nourishes and cherishes his wife. One cannot cherish a person and at the same time disregard her wishes, opinions, preferences, and dignity. Messiah-like, Christ-like headship calls for servanthood. The master considers heavy-handed authority and lording it over others as something one might expect of idolaters, but unworthy of his disciples. In Paul's view of the marriage relationship, the husband is the head and the leader, which according to the kingdom's principles of inversion makes him the servant. Yeshua's disciples are taught to lead by servanthood. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The husband is to deal with his wife according to the way the master deals with his disciples and, ultimately, with all of Israel. According to what Paul says here in Ephesians, women have two obligations to their husbands, to defer to them and to honor them. What does it mean to honor your husband? We can derive that from Jewish law regarding the commandment to honor your father and your mother. It means that you don't contradict him, insult him, embarrass him publicly. It means that you don't appropriate his position, take his seat, or usurp his authority. You look after him. You take care of him. The wife is told to defer to her husband and to honor him respect him, but she is not told to love him. Husbands have the much more difficult task of loving their wives. From this perspective, love is not merely affection or fond feelings, but rather self-sacrifice, service, providing for her and nurturing her. It's the taller order of the two, the more difficult of the two. Whereas she is called upon merely to defer to his headship, his leadership, and to offer him some civility and dignity, he is called upon to sacrifice his very self on her behalf, loving her as the Messiah loves his disciples. Husbands, love your wives as the Messiah loved the assembly and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the assembly to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Ephesians 5, 25-27 the cleansing and washing of water with the word borrows imagery from ritual purification and immersion. In Jewish tradition, the bride goes through a ritual immersion for purification before her wedding. This is what Yeshua does for his disciples by the washing of water with the word. That is, his message and his teaching. Through his teachings, he sanctifies his disciples, cleanses his disciples, and prepares his disciples for a metaphysical union. Because the Messiah cleaves to his disciples, he is able to spiritually cleanse them through the merit and virtue of his own righteousness and suffering. This is the forgiveness of sins that we find through the authority of his name. Like a husband who grants his name, and legal identity to his wife, the Messiah grants his righteous identity, splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, to his disciples so that we might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, 
Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Ephesians 5.28 So Paul juxtaposes several different ideas in these words. The Torah teaches that the husband is to cleave to his wife so that they become, as it were, one new creature. It says in Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, one creature, one body. In Paul's analogy, the Messiah is the man, the heavenly Adam, who leaves the Father to cleave to his disciples so that we become one new man with him at the head. It's the metaphysical man we have been speaking about. Again, this is why Paul can speak of the community of Yeshua's disciples on the one hand as the bride of the Messiah and on the other hand as the body of the Messiah. Because a man leaves his father and mother to cleave to his wife and becomes with her a new entity, a new creature. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Galatians 6.15 This is the idea behind his theology of the body of the Messiah. But it's not just theological mysticism. It has practical application. He says, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. This is the marital application of the commandment that says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19.18 A man's closest neighbor is his wife. The Bible calls her a neighbor who cleaves closer than a brother. Proverbs 18.24 Paul explains that the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself especially applies to one's wife. He combines the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself with Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. By becoming a new creature with his wife, the husband discovers that she is himself. Their identities have merged. As Adam said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, Genesis 2.23. In other words, she is me. We are the same creature. So Paul tells husbands, love your wife as yourself because she is yourself. He says, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Messiah does the assembly. Ephesians 5.29 This passage alludes to a verse from Isaiah about giving charity and providing for the needy. Isaiah 58.7 says, Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? The rabbis interpreted the words, Your own flesh? to mean not just your close relatives, but specifically your wife. She is his own flesh. She is the husband's first responsibility to share his bread with her, to bring her into his home, to clothe her, to protect her, to provide for her. 
So Paul uses this very biblical and Jewish idea that a man joined to his wife becomes one flesh with her, and therefore his love for her fulfills the mitzvah to love your neighbor as yourself, because she actually is yourself. He sees in marriage a divine and spiritual union as a fractal of the higher spiritual realities that exist higher up the spiritual hierarchy. Marriage uniquely illustrates the idea of distinction within unity. Within the body of Messiah, there are distinct members with distinct roles and functions. As in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Messiah, individually members one of another, Romans 12, 4 and 5. Just as a husband and a wife are one in the marriage, yet remain differentiated from one another within the marriage, so too, within the body of the Messiah, there is this overarching unity despite the differentiation of the members. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to the Messiah and the assembly, Ephesians five thirty-one and 32. At the same time, this profound mystery has a simple, practical application. Paul concludes the thought on that practical application. Yes, it's a profound mystery, and he is speaking metaphorically about the Messiah and the community of his disciples. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Find rest for your soul.